Yesterday morning, I had an epiphany. I knew that new tram would change the ski experience. We didn't know exactly how. I did a lap from the base area to base area down Liberty Bowl yesterday in under a half hour. It was like 25 minutes. The old tram had become a lift for only those that had a lot of time on their hands, not just because there was a lift line potentially, but it took multiple lifts to get there. That has changed. You blink and you're on the top of Lone Peak and I couldn't believe it. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Hello, 2024. We're going to start this year big with one of North America's largest ski resorts and one that is hitting the new year like an asteroid. Before we get to Big Sky, I want to thank all of my paid subscribers who are listening to this conversation seven full days before free subscribers. You have made the storm a sustainable small business. And frankly, I think we're just getting started here, but every new paid subscriber helps. So if you are on the free tier, I do appreciate you. And believe me, I get it. Every single one of us is on a budget and we have decisions about where to put our resources. I do want you to know that the paid tier comes with material benefits, namely a lot more lift serve skiing content than what you're getting right now. The preview you now see on Storm Skiing Journal articles is only about 20% of a typical article that I send you. And you will get podcasts a week early. And the intangible benefit, when you upgrade to paid, you are helping to ensure the future of ski journalism that is about more than stoke and pro culture. So, you know, the lift served skiing world that 99% of us actually care about. And if you are not subscribed yet at all, free or paid, you can do that at stormskiing.com. You can also follow the storm on Twitter X, Instagram, and threads at Stormski Journal. All right, let's talk about Hotronics, ski boot, foot warmers, and heated socks. You know what I love? Skiing. You know what I hate? Cold feet. My feet get cold pretty much no matter what I do, and I used to suffer through it. I don't anymore. Why? Because I hooked myself up with some Hotronic XLPC foot warmers in my ski boots. If you've had Hotronics before, I want you to know that the updated C-Series is the best on the market and is equipped with a new, larger anatomical shape, but with smaller, lighter batteries that perform in temperatures down to 22 degrees below zero. Or if you are looking for a less intrusive solution, consider Hotronic XLP heated socks. These socks offer the best size to capacity ratio and longevity on the market with up to 18 hours of continuous heating power and they will fit right into your existing ski boots with no adjustments. And here's an awesome feature. I love this. This new generation of Hotronics products is Bluetooth enabled, meaning you can manage them from the Hotronic heat app. It's time to ditch the tough guy mentality. Skiing should not be an exercise in managing discomfort. Hook yourself up with Hotronic boot warmers or heated socks this ski season. Click the link in the banner on the podcast article to get started. Episode 159, Troy Nedved, General Manager of Big Sky, Montana. If you've been following the storm for any length of time, 
you know that I am permanently hyped on Big Sky. In fact, this is my second podcast in as many months focused on America's third largest ski area. And some of you are probably thinking, bro, enough Big Sky. Give us something else to talk about. But the thing is, every time I try to look away, Boyne Resorts sets off another fireworks show at their largest mountain that I just cannot look away from. In 2018, they reset North American skiing by dropping the first eight-pack chairlift onto the Ram Charger line. Three years later, Swift Current 6 went up, giving skiers an absolutely dazzling, absolutely hypnotic out-of-base ski experience. In 2022, the ski area announced a gondola and tram complex that will move skiers from the base area to the top of Lone Peak quickly and seamlessly. Last month, I was on the ground for the grand opening of the tram portion of this project, and it was probably the nicest lift I have ever ridden. But not even a month later, and with the gondola not even built yet, Big Sky announced a second eight-pack, which will replace the 21-year-old six-shooter lift out of the Madison base on the old Moonlight Basin side of the resort. It's just incredible. But I get it. Some of you are like, bro, I don't care. Lifts are lifts. The terrain is what matters. And Big Sky also happens to have one of the most complete and diverse terrain networks in America. But the lifts do matter because they're emblematic of how Boyne views Big Sky and what they want it to be and to represent. And right now, what they have created is a ski experience like nothing else in North America. Let's get into it. My guest today has been general manager of Big Sky Montana since 2019. With 5,850 acres served by 38 lifts on a 4,350 foot vertical drop, Big Sky is one of the largest ski resorts in North America. Last month, Big Sky opened the first new tram in the United States in 15 years, which travels 2,142 vertical feet to the top of Lone Peak in under four minutes. Next year, the resort will install its second eight-place chairlift, which will be the longest such machine in the world on the Moonlight Basin side of the resort. He has worked at Big Sky since 1996 and is an active outdoorsman and endurance athlete. Troy Nedved is my guest. Troy, welcome back to the storm. It feels like I just had you on yesterday to discuss that new tram, so I cannot thank you enough for making a second appearance so quickly. How have you been doing since that December afternoon? Fantastic. Boy, I can't believe we have uh, more great news and more uh, interesting things to talk about today, but it's been uh, a pretty wonderful start to our tram in a lot of ways. It's been uh, getting a skiing up there has been so cool. Uh, I can't wait to have you back and, and try that on. I can't wait to come back. And it really is unbelievable. It's just one huge project after another at Big Sky. When we first scheduled this podcast back in the summer, the focus was going to be on the tram. That was before I knew I'd be able to make it out. But in the meantime, just in the few weeks since I've been out, like I said in the intro, Big Sky has announced a second eight-pack chairlift going in. This one will be on the Madison side of the resort. Tell us about this new lift, Troy. Why was it time to replace Six Shooter? And give us everything you can about what we're getting in its place. Yeah, you know, we've addressed a number of pinch points in recent years, all the way from R8 to Swift Current, and then the tram. And this was really our, our next nut to crack. And 
our north terrain, that Madison section is is pretty wonderful skiing. We're getting more and more demand over there, and that traditional or legacy lift is uh, just not supplying the uphill PPH that we need. So timing of this is right on par with so many other things that are happening on that north side, that north pod and terrain. And we couldn't be happier with being able to uh, tackle it this coming summer. As far as how you're laying that lift out, is this going to essentially sit on the old six shooter line? Or are you making any changes to the load and unload stations? It's a very similar alignment. Uh, a couple of variations to the bottom and top terminal, just to accommodate two things, the larger D-line terminals and also a little bit more uh, visitation and, and capacity, both in the lower queuing lines and, and off ramps as well. The load station, I believe, will be a little bit uphill. Is that right? That is correct. The bottom terminal will move up slope uh, somewhere between 60 and 80 feet. Uh, we're still ironing out the final alignment, but creates a little bit more space for queuing and some separations of, of other lifts and such. Now, the most important part of that, Troy, I mean, that's not going to take away that little cookie shack there. I, I apologize. I can't remember what it's called right now, but I'm sure many people are, are concerned about getting their cookies before they get on that lift. <laughs> If anything, we're just making a little bit more space for Uncle Dan's cookies. <laughs> nice. I love it. So the current unload where it sits, and I'm not sure how much you can do about this without a huge engineering project. So maybe you're leaving it where it is, but you do have to scoot uphill a little bit to get to that headwaters double. I know that's some pretty demanding terrain. So maybe you like that it's a little work to get over there, but have you considered smoothing out that transition from the top of what's now called six shooter over to headwaters. Yeah, you know that original design from the original uh, planners of Moonlight, they created that that gap that may have fit that time, but we believe that we would rather not have people hiking up to it. Uh, we have future plans to create an alignment for that headwaters lift that would eliminate that and improve the guest experience, but we're not gonna be tackling it with this project. That will be something in the future as well. So, so when you consider that, is that maybe a new headwaters lift? Because that's that's an old Yon double. It's been there only a big sky for about 20 years, but it did come from Kirkwood. So when you reference that, is that sort of reconfiguring what you have or is that probably a new lift for that line? I would anticipate that would be a new lift likely. Uh, it's a ways out, so it's hard to say. But I think in in the current vision, that would get replaced with a more robust and more brand line lift. So six shooter is going to be end up being the first six pack lift to be replaced in the United States. Canada has already had one come out up at a small mountain called Mount St. Louis Moonstone up in Ontario. Did you consider just adding more chairs? Cause it's a pretty low capacity six pack, only 1800 skiers per hour. Why make such a big upgrade to a lift when you could have just done more chairs to the, the current lift? You know, that is a great question that we were asked frequently and the reality is, is that lift is what we call a, a Franken lift in which Frankenstein lift in which it had a few different designers and, and components in it that made it to a place where most everything that we were improving upon had to be custom made. So hence adding chairs to it, they were no longer available. That would be custom and complex. And all the way back to people wondering why we wouldn't put bubbles on them, which would literally have to, we'd have to expand the terminals to allow for that. So 
the old lift, we really did not have a lot of options to improve upon. And this seemed to be the right configuration and the right move. How much of this, Troy, was the fact that Moonlight Basin is a property that you purchased? And it really wasn't built necessarily by ski resort developers. It was built by real estate folks, right? And the the lifts were almost an amenity to the condos and everything else you had down there. I, I mean, how much of this is just fixing what maybe wasn't built correctly or skier first in mind in the first place? There is a fair amount that happens as we move forward with the traditional moonlight terrain and that northern pod where we're trying to improve upon the ski runs, glades, lift alignments, many things just to make sure that we're bringing our brand standards to the ski experience because there were some some things that were done for the reasons you explained. You know, when I hosted Taylor Middleton, the longtime Big Sky president on the podcast a couple of years ago, we talked about the moonlight terrain or the Madison base. I'm not sure how you prefer to refer to it, but we had discussed maybe a second high capacity lift out of the base going up to the top of the horseshoe run, which is that terrain that currently for the listeners, you have to take the six shooter up and you ski down to a little quad called Lone Tree and you take that up. So you need two lifts to lap that terrain. Is that something you considered here? And ultimately, why did you decide, okay, it's better to replace six shooter than add that second lift out of Madison base? It's a fantastic question uh, that we thought about extensively. And we still believe that lift uh, is in our future. There's significant benefits that would bring more green plus terrain to us uh, on that side of the mountain that could be very beneficial. But the six shooter lift is really the artery to get connectivity between the two base areas. And we felt that that was the core priority for us to address first. So acknowledging that when I say, could you just move six shooter over that I'm talking about more than a million dollars, did you consider just taking six shooter and moving it over to land on horseshoe and then putting that new lift on the six shooter line? There was a slight contemplation. Um, There were other things that we considered of repurposing as well that could fit in that alignment. And as we check all the boxes and go through that planning, uh, it almost always takes us back to getting into the new technology. As you know, we've been committed to that uh, developing the most technologically advanced lift network in the world. And we're just trying to maintain that standard with these state-of-the-art lifts throughout. So what does happen to six shooter? I mean, it's only 20 years old. As you mentioned, it's sort of a problematic lift. I mean, does that go elsewhere in the Boyne portfolio? And maybe I'm getting above your decision-making grade here, but do you have any sense of what Boyne would do with that lift? I would imagine somewhere on their 10 mountains, they could use a six pack. Great question. And probably for the reasons I described earlier with the complexity of that unique lift, that we don't believe repurposing it at Big Sky Resort or other Boyne resorts is probably the right move. It might be a nice solution for other properties. And so our intent is likely to sell, but that's to be determined for sure. I do like the notion of selling these lifts. I've seen way too many large operators scrapping lifts that may not be up to their technological standards, but a smaller family run ski area could sure sometimes use those. Is that something that you think about? I mean, I realize there's a competitive nature in the ski industry, but there's also the notion that these smaller places can eventually support the bigger places because 
you know, most people aren't going to learn how to ski at Big Sky, but they'll learn at their local and then come up there. Do you have any thoughts around that and just this idea of helping out the competition in some ways that can also help you down the road? Oh, absolutely. That is, you know, it's a relatively small industry when you look at it and growing the sport, growing visitation, increasing beginner experience and lifelong skiers is all of our jobs. It's essential. And so we would prefer to be repurposing versus scrapping uh, in every opportunity and would certainly uh, support and help any smaller resort or any other property that could find a good use for that lift. It, It really is a strong lift. It's just has taken a lot to get it to a stage in which we can maintain it really well. And it's finally there, but we need more capacity. We need uh, a warmer lift on that side, as many of us know. So this is going to be quite the machine. Six shooter, the specs I'm seeing right now, it rises 1,828 vertical feet and it's 8,700 feet long. I mean, to, to give context, anyone who's ridden Ram Charger, that's 1,160 vertical feet and 4,461 feet long. So, so we're talking about almost twice the length. Take us through this process, Troy, because I, I realize there's always a lot of the lift you get is not the only lift you considered, right? So I would imagine that you thought about a lot of different configurations, a lot of different options. You know, we put in Ram Charger in 2018, then you ended up going with Swift Current as a six pack in 2021. So tell us about the different options or what you can about the different options you considered and ultimately why an eight place was going to be the correct lift to replace six shooter. Yeah. You, you tackle each of these decisions uh, with gathering the facts of what, what's the outcome? What do we, what do we need to accomplish? And this will be our third D line, as you know, and we've learned a lot with the, the prior two. So there are a couple of factors that go into it. Load interval is an important component into this. As we've learned, uh, American ski culture does not act the same way European ski culture is when it comes to loading lifts. Uh, Americans are a little less assertive. And so we've recognized that we need to address load intervals to make sure that we're filling chairs, maximizing uphill capacity, and making sure that we're utilizing the machine to its fullest extent. So load interval is one. Uh, the other is is storage, is the carrier storage. This lift on our two prior D-lines, we've both had large internal uh, chair barns. And this one, we're shifting gears a bit and going with the idea of having storage parking, automated storage parking, which is underneath the bottom and top terminals. So you bring those things into account as to what we were trying to achieve and it stick it into the equation. It all comes out with the need for having an eight, eight place carrier. Ram charger is not that old, right? It's you put it in 2018. This technology is getting so much better so fast. So you're making some adjustments that you just outlined as far as the chairs themselves and the features, I mean, riding Ram Charger already feels like I'm borrowing someone's Ferrari. It is just so <laughs> luxurious. So uh, it sounds like this one's going to be even more sophisticated. What are those different features and upgrades that we'll see out of this new lift? Well, I agree with your statement earlier. It never gets old ride, riding these carriers. I remember my first ride on Ram Charger and it blew me away. 
And I'm still impressed day after yeah. day of riding that with those beautiful seats, the comfortable seats, the uh, heated seats, the bubbles, the safety bars, all the above. It's just an amazing machine. Each of our D-lines have most of that technology. The key difference to this next installation is really around the safety bars. And right now, our guests are getting more and more comfortable and more consistent with using and pulling down the safety bars, both on Ram Charger and Swift Current. However, it's not 100%, and we'd like to see that improve, and we'd like it to be easier for guests. So this new machine will have automated safety bars that both go down and up automatically versus having guests uh, manage that. So Boeing, this will actually be Boeing's second chair with automated safety bars. They put in the Camelot 6 at the Highlands in Michigan this year. Deer Valley also put in a high-speed quad last year on their beginner train that has automated safety bars. Have you talked much to any of those folks to see how that's been accepted and how that's gone? You know, having grown up in the Midwest there, there were very few safety bars in on chairlifts in Michigan when I was there. In fact, the only two in the state were at Boyne Mountain and Boyne Highlands, where they had the first two detachable lifts in the state. Are folks getting used to it quickly? Have you gotten any feedback from from your colleagues over at the Highlands? We have. You know, we 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 talk about that. We certainly want that information. Like any of these moves in technology, we we tend to be on the front end of this. And we take an approach that, yeah, it takes a little bit of a transition and adapting on the front end, but people people adapt quickly and, and get into it. So we're not anticipating any challenges, nor are we aware of them. Is that something that you're going to aim for with your future chairlift installations is automatic bars? I believe that that will be the standard moving forward, not just with us, but probably beyond the North American ski industry. It might take a while for them to catch up, but I believe that's in our future. So I have to imagine, Troy, that yes, you have you want to improve the experience for the skiers already over at Madison Base. However, I would also imagine that you want to tug more skiers over there. And I talked with Stephen Kircher about this, your Boyne Resort CEO, and and I asked him this question about Boyne Mountain and Sunday River when they were putting in eight places. And a lot of the peanut gallery was saying, well, why are you putting in eight places? That's not a busy part of the resort. And his point was, yes, but they're not understanding redistribution. So what we want to do is put in a fancy lift so people go use underutilized terrain. How much of a part of the calculus was that here, Troy? You know, I was, I was surprised when I was talking to Stacy, your excellent marketing manager over there, communications manager, that a lot of guests at Big Sky apparently just lap Ram Charger and Swifty, and they don't venture beyond that, maybe because those lifts are so nice, maybe because they just don't realize they can. How much of this project is, okay, hey guys, we have this whole extra ski resort that you're not using. Come over here. This is terrific terrain because it really is. Yeah, it's a huge component to our decision-making. And not just for this lift, we've been doing that for a while. This The Shedhorn repurposing of the old Ram Charger, as you know, was for that exact reason. It was a, a beautiful chunk of terrain that was underutilized and we had minimal uh, uphill capacity. And I don't know if I said we took a chance, but we, we made that move. We didn't know how our guests would respond. And they did exactly what Stephen expected, which is take a chunk of our skier visitation into a place that was almost vacant. And, and you have people doing laps over there, releases pressure off of especially swift current. 
And so that strategy is being applied to many of our future decisions, including this one. I want to go off the board real quick because I just remembered something when you mentioned Shedhorn. When you're riding Shedhorn, there's a patrol sled in a tree. What's the story there, Troy? <laughs> yeah, that's a, a piece of history uh, up in that tree and a great reminder to what a big mountain we have and what can happen in, in the Alpine. And that was an avalanche from what I believe was 1997, if I recall. I remember the day, but I believe it was 1997. And uh, we had a major, major snowstorm piling on each other, storm after storm during our Christmas week. And through our normal control routes, that slide came from our control work down Lennon and ultimately took out part of the original Shedhorn lift, bent some towers, it was pretty aggressive. And it put that sled up in a tree, up in a white park pine tree to keep us humble and keep a, keep reminding us of what mother na- nature is capable of. It, it, does it surprise you that no one's tried to snag that as a souvenir? No, I, I think our community all recognizes it in the same way we do, that yeah. there's some pieces of history that you just don't touch. And we all, we all know that, but it's, uh, it's pretty cool. And it's uh, a great reminder to us all. I love that. So back to the topic of redistribution here, Big Sky, I, I think can be overwhelming for some folks. You introduced this ski the sky loop this year, which I thought was really clever. And I'm looking at the map right now. And essentially it takes you from Mountain Village up Ram Charger over to the Montage side of the resort. And essentially you're skiing all the lifts and a bunch of major runs. Tell us about the Ski the Sky Loop, why you created it, and how folks can participate. Well, this segues right off of our last topic, which is redistribution, getting our guests to ski our whole mountain and experience the wonderfulness of all of our 5,850 acres. Most people come from small ski areas. I mean, as you know, there are a lot of major destination ski areas that still have less than half of our acreage. So when guests come to Big Sky, it's not normal for them to reach out, travel to the extremities uh, without a guide or motivation or, or some other thing. So this is just another tool to continue that. And, you know, there's, there's information throughout the resort. It's on our trail map to get a guide and, and set up that experience and check it out because it does pinpoint all a lot of key new pieces, as you explained, all the way from the montage on the southern end to pieces on the north to the tram. And it, it's, it's a well-designed trip uh, that will blow the socks off a lot of our guests. And it's rooted and you'll see a lot of these in Europe, especially in resorts with immense terrain and acreage. And it's it's pretty amazing experience for all the reasons that you described. It, so it says on this map that I'm looking at, complete the challenge and collect your prize. How, does, how do you prove that you completed the challenge? And what can you tell us about the prize? <laughs> There's a little bit of an honor system to it, but clearly if you're with a guide, it's, it's documented that way. And a lot of folks do. We have a lot of people booking guides for this throughout this coming winter. So we'll be excited to see how this grows, how our guests use it and how it evolves in the future. Uh, it, it may may look different in a couple of years, but it's a cool idea. And pr- for a prize, well, I think you're gonna have to come visit us and give it a shot. <laughs> I, can't, I can't reveal the prize. You're gonna have to come earn it yourself. 
I will. I, I hope everyone will take that advice because it really is amazing to scale around this place. So last question about the six shooter upgrade here, Troy, I, maybe you're going to still call it six shooter. I don't know what, how are you approaching the name? Yeah, that's an interesting topic. Uh, came up yesterday, today, well, almost every day right now, <laughs> when it comes to these big things, I will tell you, everybody's got an opinion. And so it's, uh, it's quite a process, but we take naming very seriously because you live with it for 20, 30, 50 years and beyond. You got to put some thought into it and get it right. So we have a process. We have brand work in the, within the resort that we have to adhere to. And we're going to be very thoughtful about that and get it right. But it's a fun opportunity to name such a new and important lift. What can you tell us about that process, Troy? Is there a clear theme? I mean, there's a lot of kind of Western explorer type things going on here, but some of these other ones like Thunderwolf, I'm not sure if that fits in with some sort of lore or something. What can you tell us about the process that you undergo to name a new lift? We take into account a lot of history and, and some of it is fully brand aligned. Some of it is historical. You'll hear some lifts that are linked to uh, the naming around the Lewis and Clark days and a little bit more of a Western theme. You'll hear some stuff that, you know, Lewis and Clark, Teddy Roosevelt, a lot of the uh, earlier adventurers and explorers, um, that's a part of our identity. But then we have a lot to it with our, our newer and, and more brand aligned, vision aligned thoughts of, of it being a, a magical place and the big sky of Montana. And there's just so much to it that we're trying to tie all these pieces together. It's okay for one pod of our terrain because we're so large to have a little bit of a unique component of their identity, whether that's the north side, whether that's Andesite or Spirit Mountain or, or Flatiron Complex or the Lone Mountain Complex to have a little bit unique character to it. And we take all that into account into the naming process and try to maintain some common themes. Have you considered sponsored lifts? And just stay with me on this because if the answer is an outright no, that's, that's fine. But this is something that most large ski resorts in the West cannot do because they're on Forest Service land and it's prohibited through their lease agreements, Big Sky is all on private land. And I would imagine that, I don't know, Coca-Cola would pay you a million dollars a year to sponsor the Lone Peak Tram. Is this something you've ever talked about or considered for Big Sky? Well, I won't say it hasn't been talked about because it's been brought up, as you said. It, yeah, a lot of people would love those opportunities of naming, whether that is runs, lifts, or any other thing. But it's something we really try to stay away from. Like I said, we hold it pretty close to our chest uh, and take it very seriously. It's something that we live with for not decades, but generations. And hence, we don't want to put that in the hands of others. So breathe easy, Big Sky Nation. No Taco Bell six-shooter coming next year. You know, it's, it's unbelievable, Troy, but that eight place is not the only new lift coming to Big Sky next year. You also have the new one and only gondola. Tell us about this new machine and how it will interact with that A place, if it's going to drop off and connect or if, if it's uh, on a different line. Yeah. So they do not overlap, but that does the, the new one and only gondola transports from the new one and only resort 
across to the existing Madison Village and drops you off in that ski portal. As you know, it's it's a relatively short ski down a green slope just to connect to the bottom of that new eight place. So this lift, so the one and only will go from the Madison base, then you ski down to six shooter, then I guess, or would be a, the new eight place. And then you'll be able to ski down to the new, to the one and only gondola to reboard it from the new eight place. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Any Whether you were skiing from the Mountain Village or Swift Current or Iron Horse and skiing to the Madison Village, all of that would allow you to to board the one and only and take that across to the one and only complex. How far is that? You know, I do not know the exact distance, the factual, but it's a relatively short lift. It's not a long distance and it's also not built to be high capacity. It's built for luxury and to to fit the one and only brand, but it's not a high capacity lift. It is a D-line lift, Troy. Why such a sophisticated lift for one that just takes you from one place to the next without it that is low capacity? Yeah, the one and only brand would really is the answer to that question. Uh, that demands the the best. And I've done some tours of that complex and what's being built over there. It's pretty fantastic. And I, I believe that we want that connectivity and that experience um, throughout our complex to be state of the art. And that lift as being a D-line will accomplish that. So that sounds exclusive. That sounds expensive. But my understanding is this will be a public lift. Tell us about what skiers will find if they take that, just for curiosity. Great question. There is not ski terrain on the other end of it, but there is a ski lodge. And there are three other uh, soon-to-be-named fantastic restaurants, uh, which is really the public access component that I think would be a pretty special experience for those that choose. So this one and only gondola, it actually complements a fairly large transportation lift fleet that you have or, or... I forget how you frame it exactly, I, th- I think, but it, it's essentially like real estate lifts, right? They connect people from homes up to the mountain and then they don't really take a lot of skiers, but you, you, it connects you to the main lift network. Tell us about this lift network and, and how you manage those from a point of view of, I believe this is actually a collaboration to pay for this lift with one and only, right? So Big Sky is not footing the entire bill. Just what can you tell us about that lift leading and how that distinguishes Big Sky because there are some of these lifts floating around the country, but you have the biggest fleet as far as I can tell. We do. Matter of fact, I I almost forgot that with the addition of that lift and and others, we have a lot of replacements, but I think that may be putting us potentially in the largest of the fleets, for sure, the most complex of them all, uh, I I would be confident to say. But yeah, that, that lift is another lift that will be operated by us. Um, to be clear, it is it is created and developed with the one and only group and the Lone Mountain Land Group. And like some of the other components that we have with real estate access, some of it's real estate, some of it is a mix of real estate and ski, some of it's core ski with that throughout our complex. And this one is a real estate access lift. How much does that complicate Mountain Ops jobs that they have not only all these super sophisticated lifts you have on the mountain to get skiers around, but also all these other lifts that while not maybe necessary to ski operations really need to be functioning a pretty high percentage of the year, I would imagine. Yeah, they certainly do. Our reliability is key. And with the technology that comes with these new D-lines, it's uh, 
their mechanical reliability is exceptional, but it also takes a new type of lift mechanic to really maintain and run the electronics, uh, which is more complex. So as we go on, which that would be the fourth D line in which we would be operating, we are getting more and more uh, experienced and savvy with these machines, but it is, uh, it, it's an undertaking for our mountain ops team. And that means we would be ultimately taking on two new D lines in the same year, which is um, a significant task for our team. Is this new gondola going to have just two stations, one for load, one for unload? Is there a mid station anywhere? There's a turn in the lift, but it's not one in which you would exit or load. So you are correct. It's got a load and an unload uh, with, a, with a turn in the middle. And what can you tell us about the unload location specifically? I'm looking here at the trail map now. And in relation to the Derringer quad and the two carpets that sit there, is it going to land to the lookers right of Derringer? Or is there somewhere else in there? It lands a lot closer to the Jayhawk lift, if you're looking at the map. Oh, okay. Uh, yep. And closer to the Jayhawk lift, which would be on the east side of the Madison Village. So along those green runs there, like below the Cowpoke Park? Yep. And it will land and intersect with uh, what's in current design phase of a, a future more robust Madison Village. Yeah, those are pretty fun trails to ski down there. The It sort of feels like you're in a completely different resort on those greens down there. They just sort of meander and go over some cool bridges and stuff. I really like that terrain down there. Yeah, it's got a different feel to it. It's uh, There are a lot of people that, that that is their place. And that's the beauty of Big Sky with having so much terrain is there are pods and sections with different character that fit different people's uh, desires. So let's talk about the Lone Peak Tram for anyone who wants an overview of that machine. Troy, along with Taylor Middleton and Stephen Kircher, joined me for a quick podcast on the day it was launched. So I'm not going to rehash all of that. I, I mean, it was an amazing day, amazing energy. But let me ask you this a month later, how are you feeling about this? How happy are you with this machine? What have you learned? Great time to ask that question. Yesterday morning, I had an epiphany. Uh, I, I knew that new tram would change the ski experience. We didn't know exactly how, right? You can't predict all skier behavior and such. But I will say that. I did a lap from the base area to base area down Liberty Bowl yesterday in under a half hour. It was like 25 minutes. Oh, and wow. that didn't exist. That wasn't, on, that wasn't on the table in the past. I think many people heard me say that the old tram and the demand around it had become a lift for only those that had a lot of time on their hands. Mm-hmm. And that would be not just because there was a lift line potentially, but it took multiple lifts to get there. That has changed. Now we have a ride up a lightning fast swift current lift with the tram right around the corner and then a four minute ride to the summit. You blink and you're on the top of Lone Peak and I couldn't believe it. And I skied back around and I knew it was going to be that fast. I just, yeah, I, I, I it blew me away. It, it's, it's changed everything, not just for our scenic visitors, with the ski experience as well, uh, 2,100 plus vertical off of that lift in a four minute ride is unbelievable. So when you have an epiphany like that, Troy, to what extent do you just sit back and say, okay, that's cool. Skiers will figure it out. And to what extent do you go to your teams and start to let that trickle down to the skiers as more of something that is known that you can do a lap from the base 
up to Lone Peak and down in less than half an hour? You know, I think our community, our guests, our employees, everyone will figure it out for themselves in their own way. And I think that's important. As we talked about earlier, amazing as the Lone Peak Tram is, as amazing as skiing off Lone Peak is, we want people to spread out. There is unbelievable skiing from north to south, from east to west on our, our property. And, and we want to spread folks out. So uh, yeah, it will, um, it finds its way. People find their patterns and it'll be interesting to see how they choose. We also do a lot within how we operate strategically to continually urge people and spread people out and, and achieve all of those things that we talked about earlier in this uh, conversation. So the operations here are a lot more intricate than when an average lift where, you know, you have eight seats on a Ram charger. You're going to try to load eight seats at a time with skiers. But this machine, the 75 passenger Lone Peak Tram replaces a 15 passenger tram. And you've been very clear and very deliberate from the start, Troy, from announcing this lift that that doesn't mean you're going to jam this thing with 75 skiers every single time. So again, a month in, how have you been managing skier capacity and balancing that with sightseers. I realize it's not quite as easy for sightseers to get up there now as it will be in a couple of years when this gondola that we'll, we'll talk about in a minute goes in. But how have you been managing that whole process so far and what have you learned? So we started out with an initial plan and well knowing that we would have to adapt because we certainly didn't know how it was going to uh, evolve. But we've already made a couple of adaptions to our menu of how we choose to load um, the visitation on the tram, and we're, we're making adjustments daily. Yesterday was our first uh, day in which we went to a little higher capacity from a, a ski component, and so we have a configuration of a certain number of, of scenic and certain number of skiers and riders that is going to give us the flexibility to maintain that unbelievable ski experience on the summit and make sure that we protect that. Have you seen a lot of skiers just leaving their skis at the bottom and going up? And I, I realize you could do that before, but I, I think it was maybe a little bit more intimidating experience before just because the lift was so small and intimate. And, and I would imagine that it was a little harder to get to. Have you seen maybe more families or whatever go up to the top? And Because even that, I mean, it, it, you know, there was no ski down when I was there because there wasn't enough snow yet. But have, have you seen folks start to do that more just as a, as a family activity or as just something to do? Absolutely. The prior tram uh, scenic was almost frowned upon because there was limited uphill capacity and it was in demand. And at times, yeah, it, it, it's almost as if people felt guilty for bringing their skis back down. It has changed. Now it's celebrated and you watch that happening. It is skiers and riders and scenic alike all on the tram, interacting, celebrating. It's just, it's a different feel and it's pretty amazing. And I think we've just scratched the surface. Uh, summer's going to be unbelievable, future winters. I'm not sure exactly how it's going to evolve, but it's opened so many doors for us and it is setting the stage for uh, uh, the next 50 years. So I, I can't underscore this enough, what an incredible ride this is. The thing that impressed me the most, Troy, was the speed. And I didn't even realize how fast that was moving until I saw the downbound car 
past the upbound car. And it looked like someone had just thrown it off the summit. It was going so fast. That was the thing that stuck with me and that I keep telling everyone about. What sort of things are you hearing from people? Because it's it's a special experience and I imagine it resonates with different people in different ways. But what's the kind of common themes that you're hearing from people as they ride this thing? The same thing. It's the ride in and of itself is an experience. Uh, I see people that are avid skiers and riders that are actually leaving their skis at the bottom to ride the machine because they hear that the down, the ride on the downside over the tower, you know, they talk, they call it the elevator drop uh, is exhilarating and they want to experience it. And I'd never thought that would be a thing. It is a thing. And so you're hearing people with throughout the community, guests from all over the country that are coming in and are blown away at, the capabilities of this machine and what it feels like to ride. The seats in there are so cool. The ability to sit down in different locations and just watch and experience, look at the Grand Tetons to the south. There's a lot, a lot to it. Yeah, it's a really gorgeous machine too, just aesthetically. You know, we, we discussed when you came on the pod a couple of weeks ago that you were switching to a paper ride model before it was paper day, which you'd adopted a couple of seasons ago. How happy are you with that? Troy so far? How happy are the guests with it? It's been a win-win all the way around. It gives us more flexibility than we had in the past. And it's opened the door for, yeah, a lot more people to get up there, both with price point and not having to commit to a full day. So one ride is, is a pretty easy and pretty reasonable price tag, especially for that machine. So it's a spectacular lift. If you... Even if you skied Big Sky in the past, I would recommend anyone go there. It is just an extra cool experience. Actually, not the only new lift at Big Sky this year. And, and this one, I didn't even really hear about it until I was looking right at it. But it's a, a double carpet that goes up from your beginner area higher than the bubble carpets there. Now, tell us about this new lift, Troy, why you put this in and what you're hoping to achieve with this cool double carpet. Oh, yes. This is, unfortunately, it's so easy to forget some of these other really important things in a year with a new tram, but that was a home run. This this new double carpet with a full cover, it is unbelievable. And the guest reviews are, are off the charts. It is for our main beginner area. And hence, in the past, we would have a lot of lines, people standing out in the snow uh, and inclement weather. And it was uh, absolutely targeted at that beginner experience to make sure that we were getting that right. And this thing is is exceeding our expectations. What was the process like to choose that? Because it, it's there's so many different ways that you can build a beginner area. And I, big mountains often struggle with this. They're really good at offering the big stuff, but, but less good at offering the beginner stuff. What was that process like when, and how did you arrive at, okay, w- what we need here is two side-by-side carpets covered with a, with a tunnel. And, and, and maybe that's a bigger boring question because some of it's no quality also put one in this year, but, but how did you arrive at this lift? You know, we knew that this lift will have a need for this, no matter what our snow sports school and that, Lesson demand is growing faster than almost any other aspect of our, our business. And we knew that we have to get it right. That's key to retention, key to growing lifelong skiers. And so 
I know Stephen and Nick Heron, our SVP of Snow Sports, put their heads together and said, hey, this is our next move and this fits right there. And it gives us a lot of flexibility for future growth for our beginner areas. We don't know where and how that's going to grow, but we want the flexibility to adapt and expand our, our acreage to make sure that that experience is, is as good as anywhere. Yeah, it's funny. This new lift is actually easy to miss, but it runs parallel to Swifty a little bit up. It's called S4 on the trail map. And everyone should check that out and, and make sure to ski by it because it's really actually a, a very beautiful machine. Another big change this year, Troy, at Big Sky was the introduction of a double blue square rating. You also changed a lot of ratings for other trails from green up to blue or or et cetera. So just take us through this whole reevaluation, why you introduced the double blue square rating and and reevaluate a lot of your trails overall. Yeah, great question. You know, a couple of years ago, we came up with this strategy of identifying certain runs on our mountain that were triple black diamond, and that is non-traditional in North American skiing. But the reasoning for it was really to ensure that our guests understood the differences of terrain. And that carries through all of these decisions to make sure that we are setting our guests up for success and communicating to them as best we can. We know that Western skiing is not always the same comparison in these scales to a Midwest, maybe even Eastern. And so the double black diamond set that stage for high exposure terrain that is unique to almost big sky alone in North America. And hence we wanted to acknowledge that uh, from a safety factor and a guest experience factor. Carrying that down throughout our other terrain, I've always said that we have possibly the best green plus blue minus terrain in the country. We are known for our extreme terrain, our high alpine terrain, but the truth of the matter is, is, is we have green plus and blue minus in spades, and we have a lot of it. And there's a variation throughout those, those zones that is a relatively big range to our guests. So like a few other ski areas, I believe Deer Valley and I believe Jackson also have some touches on the double blue and some double green stuff that they have tackled. And we share some similar clientele. And so we thought that it made a lot of sense uh, for us to articulate the difference between our easier greens and our more challenging, our easier blues and our more challenging blues. How happy are you with the ratings you arrived at so far? Fantastically happy. And, and the percentages in which they came out uh, that really aligns with the feel and what we have to offer throughout our, our different skill levels. So it, it's been a project that I think we hit the nail on the head and, and we're really happy we took it. Well, Troy, I could talk all day about just what you've done this year and what you're going to do next year. But I do want to touch on your background here. And, and that's because you grew up in what I've always thought was one of the most interesting regions of the country which is the Black Hills of South Dakota. And most folks, I think, when they think of South Dakota, think of long flatlands and farmlands, and that's certainly what a lot of the state is. But the Black Hills is just this really, from my eyes as a tourist, a kind of a magical region. Tell us about the Black Hills and what it was like to grow up there. Yeah, it's a beautiful location. And as you described, most people think of South Dakota as flat cornfields, agriculture, and the Black Hills are not that. They're a lot more similar to Montana than they are the rest of South Dakota. Although not as high of mountains, they're they're really 
wonderful, beautiful terrain. The key point of, of the Black Hills that many people almost don't even believe is there is a Harney Peak in, in the Black Hills that is the highest point east of the Rockies. That means wow. that the Black Hills have the highest elevation point of anything on the East Coast. And if that helps set the stage to understand what it offers for ski, because there's fantastic skiing on the East Coast, as we all know. So that maybe puts it in context. So tell us a little bit about Black Hills skiing. And I, my understanding is you didn't necessarily grow up in a ski family, but tell us what we can find there from a ski point of view and how you experienced that as a young man. Yeah, the... Um, there are two ski areas in the Black Hills, Deer Mountain and Terry Peak. And I think Deer Mountain has actually changed names. And that was my first ski experience. Uh, family didn't ski, but neighbors and uh, that were going up uh, with a church group, night skiing. Night skiing is a big thing in the Black Hills. And that was my first opportunity to ski. And boy, did I ever take to it. And bought skis, my lawn mowing money, bought, bought my skis. And I was building jumps in the backyard and my parents and my family thought I was nuts. And <laughs> it carried through all the way through high school. And that's what brought me to Montana. Uh, I knew I needed to get into the mountains and, and take that next level uh, and pursue skiing. So Deer Mountain and Terry Peak are more or less right next door to each other. I mean, you can't, you have to kind of drive around the mountains, but from a topographical point of view, they're pretty close. Which one did you spend more time at? Throughout high school, I skied Terry Peak more frequently. That was the more common. It was the larger of the two. Uh, but Deer Mountain, you know, periodically I would still go back to, and especially more so for the night skiing component. It was pretty magical in that area to, in the night skiing experience it is, is really cool. So Terry Peak has actually got a pretty respectable vertical drop. It's an 1100 footer and it's, it's on the Indy Pass and seems to be doing fine. They have three high speed lifts there. So it's a nice little operation. Deer Mountain actually was out of business for several years, was recently purchased by a family who is going to turn it into either a private or a semi-private club, but they are going to bring back skiing in a modified form. A bunch of the old trails are taking out to put housing in, but it may be open to the public on weekdays or non-peak periods. They're still sort of working out the model, but regardless of how it comes back, it seems as though it will come back. What what's, what's your reaction, Troy, to seeing that Deer Mountain would possibly come back in some form? You know, it makes me happy that it still has, it has people skiing there. Uh, this last fall, I went back and rode my bike, a gravel bike around that area. And of the two mountains between Terry Peak and Deer Mountain, Deer Mountain is is probably more beautiful. It's it's unbelievable. So I see why there's an appeal to create a private club there. It makes some sense. But I think having the two of them next to each other continues to offer options for many. And I'm happy to see that that's going to be back and operational. Yeah, the the folks who are bringing it back, actually, when I asked them, how do you feel about being right next door to Terry Peak? He said, well, we see that as an amenity because it's another big ski area that's right there. So, so less as competition, I think, and more as a compliment. Yes. So, so you grew up in, in the Black Hills and really special area, really special place, but you moved West. What took you West and kind of take us through your career and, and, and what happened after you landed out West? Yeah, so I went to school in Bozeman and Montana State. To Montana State, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, to help pay for school, pay my way through school, I got a job as a ski instructor. 
I did teach a little bit back at Terry Peak for a brief time and gave me a bit of a foundation there uh, and and a little bit of a step up to get a job at Bridger. Tried out to be a ski instructor, got a job, and I taught uh, all the way through college. And intent was always to go to law school, but along the way, I also had an opportunity. I applied for summer job in Yellowstone National Park, had some interest in being a ranger or getting into the uh, resource side of uh, management side of the park service. So the same year as I graduated college, instead of going to law school, I chose to spend a year or two mm-hmm. and work in the park in the summer and go teach skiing at Big Sky in the winter. So what were you doing in the summer in the park service? Uh, Great question. Broad range of things. Resource management is the world I got into, which was quite broad. Wildlife management, range management. I got into wildfire management as well. Ran a a hell attack crew for a lot of my summers and wildland fire. Got a huge experience base throughout the years. I had a, a career of 22 years in the park service. Oh, wow. So, so what's it like working in the park service? It's it's one of those jobs that's really unique and offers you experiences that that I think most of us can only imagine. What is it like actually being behind the lines? And, and I'd imagine there's some frustrations with that too, because you are working with some limitations and, and I would imagine asked to do a lot with maybe not necessarily a lot. So what can you tell us about that experience and just what that was like? Yeah, to well, on the front end from working for the federal government, obviously there's a fair amount of bureaucracy with it. And you learn to navigate that through the years. And I think I've, I learned enough in that to know pitfalls to avoid while now working with the private sector and and things that I can apply to this job. But back to the experiential side of of working in the park service, a lot of people that know me well, uh, they hear my stories and endless stories about the stuff that I experienced and saw in the park. And I think half the time people are like, oh my gosh, is he making this stuff up? And it, it, I think back about it and it, it almost seems like a dream because this, the world of Yellowstone National Park, whether that's visitors, employees, wildlife, it is the wild, wild west. And, and there are the, the things that you're exposed to are almost unbelievable. Can you give us one? <laughs> oh, geez. <sighs> well, I I um, I spent a lot. I got to kayak an unkayakable river, which is is ultimately uh, not allowed to general public. Class five okay. and stuff. I was in charge of whitewater search and rescue, and so of the the beauty and the amazing things that happen in the park. The negative side of this is is there also a lot of tragedy, and mm. I was oftentimes in zones, helicopter, kayaks, whatever it may be, of, of searching for lost individuals, bodies, mm-hmm. a lot of pretty severe stuff over the years that were uh, pretty crazy. But within those experiences, the wildlife interactions, oh my gosh, the, the bear world is, is endless of, of bear interactions and managing bears in, in Yellowstone was, boy, on a different planet. You know, I we could go into any of that stuff. I want to focus on the kayaking for a moment because my understanding is you're a pretty advanced kayaker and been featured in some videos and everything. It's a world that's always interested me, but one that I've never really gotten into other than 
you know, I grew up on a lake and we would kayak around the lake, but that's just a whole different thing from river kayaking. So the, the community to me seems to parallel skiing in a lot of ways and that there's a lot of different ways you can experience it, right? You could do what I just said and just go put around on a lake or you can do what you were describing, which is is try to survive some pretty severe rapids. What can you tell us about that community, Troy, and what parallels it might have to the ski community and how it might be different? Yeah, there's quite a few similarities when you look at the lifestyle of those that pursue living in the mountains, living in mountain towns. You know, that kayaking community was so unique because it drew out the explorer in me and the pioneering of of rivers that had never been run. I, I spent about a decade of my life traveling the world and seeking out rivers, waterfalls, many things that people had had never experienced. And it was unbelievable, an unbelievable ride that, you know, I no longer am running class five. I, I still kayak a fair amount, but uh, that community and their similarities to what you see in, in the mountains, whether that's backcountry skiing, front country skiing, uh, there, there are a lot of similarities to that, that lifestyle and that mentality. What was the wildest river you ever ran? Whew. Um, of all the places from, boy, New Zealand to Costa Rica to Nepal, uh, surprisingly enough, my favorite and, and probably still the craziest, it's called The Box, and it's in Montana. It comes out of the Beartooth Mountains, and it's the second deepest gorge in the country to the Grand wow. Canyon. And it's still, to this day, my favorite and probably the most challenging. If someone wants to get into that world, how do they do it in a smart way? Because it seems like that'd be a pretty easy world to make a really big mistake in. It is. It's um, There's a lot of risk involved. Uh, there's not a lot of room for mistakes. And it takes a certain type of mindset and commitment. And I think I've spent a lot of years with people coming up and friends wanting to learn kayaking, wanting to get into it. And I always have the same relatively direct answer is, are you willing to do this six days a week? Because if you're not, I wouldn't do it. And that's part of that is because the risk associated with it really takes that level of focus and commitment. And it's tough. It's something you don't want to dabble in. Would, would you say that because my my wife and I had this brilliant idea that we were going to rent kayaks in uh, Slovenia several years ago. And um, as we tried to board the kayak shot off down the river and the guide had to run after it. So we ended up going rafting instead. Would you say that most people probably should be rafting? It is. It's a, it's a safer route to go. You have a little bit less control. There are different things, but yes, as a general sense, I think that is probably a more sensible and appealing uh, whitewater avenue for the masses. It makes more sense. Yeah, because even that was uh, one of the rafts flipped over and not the one we were in, but it's, you know, there's a lot to manage there. Luckily, we had some really good guides that got everyone out safe. So it sounds like you were working at Big Sky in the winters at the same time you're working at the Park Service. Kind of take us through this journey here, Troy, and how you ended up ultimately as general manager at Big Sky. Yeah, you, you know, my passion had always been in the ski industry. I certainly, my summer job allowed me to keep doing this and hence now 27 28 years later it supported this this winter passion for me there was a certain point for me at which i had kids i knew i probably didn't have the time 
to be pursuing two separate careers and I wanted to consolidate. I love Big Sky and Stephen and Taylor had come to me and asked about my plans for the future and and if there were thoughts on on committing to Big Sky 12 months a year and it was just a timing thing like so many things in life it was the right time for me to shift gears uh, and put my full attention on the resort and the place that I live and love. This is the third Big Sky podcast I've done. The last one you were joined by Taylor Middleton and I also had Taylor on solo. And, and that actually is one of my most downloaded episodes ever of out of over 170 episodes. Taylor, I think, has a really unique leadership style and and I think a very effective one. Curious from your point of view, what it's been like to work with Taylor and and what you learned from him working in proximity to him all those years and now and now very close. Taylor has such a wonderful leadership style and and in some ways we're different and in other ways we complement each other quite well. I'll tell you he's an amazing coach and he's been that throughout my career um, continues to be today for me and the transition to this position in 2019, boy, I couldn't have asked for a better situation and a better mentor to guide me through that process. And the room he created for our new leadership team to step up was something I've never seen in the ski industry. I've never seen others build a team and create a secession plan and give them the room to make the decisions and to lead that Taylor had. It's, it's been a pretty amazing journey, which is, boy, now I think we're going into our fifth winter here. I mean, it's interesting because from an outsider's point of view, the change that we see at Big Sky is all these new lifts and all the trail map stuff and all this stuff that we've been talking about. But how important is that internal maneuvering and that sort of ability to share and set ego aside, I would imagine, at some point in in, in making that transition happen, because it's, it's been so fast and, you know, it's, it's easy to say, okay, you just throw money at it and it happens. But the reality is people have to do these things. So how important has that been to all this transformation that we've seen at Big Sky? Yeah. You know, we've built there, there are new players. We have to build the in, bench strength to deliver on all these new things. It's, it's a different uh, business model than we had a few years ago. And as you say, setting ego aside, it's a team effort between Taylor and I, between our leadership team, between our corporate teams to make all this stuff happen. There are so many players that are contributing to these big projects that we would not be able to execute, not even close if we didn't have all those people committed. So yeah, almost endless big projects. And even with the new tram opening this year, even with the eight pack and a new gondola opening next year, the year after that, 2025, you have a two-stage, 10-passenger, out-of-base gondola that will run where the current Explorer lift runs. So essentially, you'll have Ram Charger, Swifty, and a 10-passenger gondola. Almost unbelievable. And this project was announced a while ago, and Taylor's broken it down, Steven's broken it down. They didn't have a lot of specifics last time I asked them about this, which was in 2022. So things like what that beginner area at the mid-station will look like, how the gondola will connect with the tram. So can you give us an update here, Troy, on what to expect out of this new gondola when it opens next year? The machine will increase our capacity out of the Mountain Village by another 30%, uh, which is unbelievable. I think it would take us to 
10,000 skiers per hour capacity out of the base area with the three lifts or close there to it. And that is a game changer. As you know, Swifty has as pretty high capacity and a fantastic lift, but it's in high demand and getting the beginners now, let's say a uh, lower skill demographic to focus on the gondola ride and allowing that separation of skill set a little bit and taking a third more skiers that maybe don't need to go to the full mountain village for whatever they may need tickets and such to access the mountain from that side is again, going to be a game changer for us experientially for our guests. Do you ever wish that you would have made Swifty an eight? I don't think we had the uh, technical capability at that time from the weight of the machine and the capabilities and horsepower. I don't think it was an option to be honest. And to answer your question, we had the gondola planned before Swift Current. We pivoted because we thought that was a higher priority at the moment, but we knew the gondola was eventually going to be a thing. So to answer your question, no, I don't think so. I think I think it performs really nice as a six and will especially perform nice as a six once we have that high capacity gondola uh, next to it. So that gondola, I've seen different renderings or ideas where the gondola and the tram would kind of share a building and it would maybe just be walking steps or across a platform to connect with the tram. What's the current thinking around how passengers will move from the gondola to the tram and how close those two terminals, the unload of the gondola and the load of the tram will be? Yeah, very intentional to have the overlap. The, the whole idea is to facilitate foot traffic or all traffic and connectivity from all the way from the base area to the summit. So, you know, I think the actual elevation drop is about 20 feet, give or take a couple of feet, not much, and a very close proximity between the two machines. Moving on to employee housing, I've been really impressed with not only the volume of housing that you've been building, but where you've been building it. And this Levinsky Lodge in particular is walking distance to the lifts. And, and I think that's so important. And a lot of operators have been hesitant to give this real estate over to employees. Winter Park actually today just opened one that's right at the base of the Cabriolet, which I thought was fantastic. And that holds over 300 employees. But take us into this as far as the scale of what you're doing with employee housing and why you're approaching it in this way that you're actually putting employees right on the mountain. Yeah, it's a different strategy. And people have asked us that question uh, because many choose to have employees far, far away, bus them in, that kind of thing. And we've made statements that we want to become, to be the best employer in the industry. And our employee livability, the experience, the lifestyle is very important to us. We want people to live it, to feel the passion, love where they are, love skiing and riding. And being close is important. Also transportation, you know, having that housing, the majority of our housing within walking distance of the ski area, again, it's non-typical, it's unique to us. And it's amazing. And our team members appreciate it. They love it. They come to work more refreshed. They don't have an hour shuttle, all those kinds of things. So it's a different way to look at it, but it's us doubling down on our employee and our team because we know if we take care of them, they're going to take care of our guests. I mean, even with everything we've talked about here today, Troy, we've barely touched on how transformative the Big Sky 2025 plan was, which is the sort of uh, structure that you've put all these new lifts and all these improvements under. 
when this plan was announced in 2015, it was it was a good plan, but it it, it didn't have it wasn't necessarily as transformational as what's actually happened. Was this a deliberate example of under promising and over delivering? Or was it as you put in these projects, really the resort started to gain more momentum and more visitors and you said, oh, we can actually do more here. Kind of take us through how we ended up with a, a good but modest plan in 2015 to the reality of 2025, really elevating Big Sky way beyond, I think, what anyone expected. Yeah. Boy, in 2015, 2016, we thought that plan was quite ambitious. And you're right. I think you hit the nail on the head. Momentum continued. We always knew that we had a gem of a mountain of a ski experience here, and it was only a matter of time before the demand came. And momentum continually builds upon momentum. As you know, and these new lifts, the new investment, just, just the whole idea has snowballed at a faster rate than we would have ever anticipated. Counting all the new lifts that'll be in that we've discussed today, that'll be 11 new lifts, one relocated lift, renovated lodges, hotels, restaurants, got more stuff going on in the village. It's almost hard to imagine what's left to do. And I know the work of building a ski resort is never quite done, but can you give us any hints, Troy, about what might be in Big Sky 2035? And I'm just guessing there'll be a Big Sky 2035. No one's actually said that to me, but after this is done next year, it's not like you're just going to stop doing stuff. So, So what can you tell us about what might be next? Yeah, there's a lot of work going into a lot of equally as as meaningful plans, um, some of them well beyond what we've already experienced. It's hard to say, right? But we have no more pieces to the tram experience that you've heard us share and talk about both at the top and bottom uh, and on the summit. It's it's uh, we, we have a lot of pretty big things in the future. We have a lot of acreage and a lot of potential. And I'll tell you what, Steven's vision is uh, unbelievable. So I'm not sure I even put a number on a 2035 because the future that we have in front of us is pretty unbelievable. And, and the list is long and the, the potential is, is something like nowhere else in North America. Are you saying we could see more terrain even? Yeah, I, I believe that is an option. I believe that there, there could be some of that in our future as well. Where in relation to the current terrain, is that even possible? Good question. I don't know if I'm in a place where I can share at this point, <laughs> but uh, I think I may need to keep that one close to our chest. But yeah, there is, there, is, uh, there are acres and additional uh, terrain that are, are being contemplated. So you've made so many lift upgrades. I almost feel guilty asking this, but what other lifts are on your radar? You know, Lone Moose or Thunder Wolf? Are there any lifts that your or headwaters we should discuss earlier that you would like to personally see upgraded without holding you to it necessarily? The six shooter replacement is a true pinch point now in which we we really want additional uphill capacity. We're going to be doubling it with this new machine right out of right out of the gate for next winter. But there are other pieces that will improve the guest experience uh, from an access point, keep people spread out, you know, and that goes north to south, uh, southern comforts to iron horse. Uh, there's that the uh, other potential lookout ridge lift. Those are all things that we're constantly planning, rethinking and reevaluating the, the current situation as to our next priority. 
Last thing I want to ask you about today here, Troy, and it, and it relates to all these big projects. The Icon Pass, I think skiers have a love-hate relationship with. It's really great for a lot of reasons, and it also focuses a lot of attention on a few mountains. One of the things I imagine that it seems like it's great for is that it's a pretty steady revenue stream. I'm curious what the relationship is between Icon Pass Visitation, which started in 2018, and some of these major projects, which also started around the same time. Is it a coincidence or is the Icon Pass, in fact, driving some of this investment with that reliable stream of visitors it's sending your way? Yeah, great question. It has contributed uh, but I wouldn't call it the main driver by any means. Uh, the momentum that we've experienced at Big Sky is for all the reasons you know I, I alluded to earlier, uh, with our reinvestment, with a lot of things happening throughout Southwest Montana. It uh, yeah, there are a lot of factors that have been contributing to that momentum. Uh, the icon is more of just another one of those uh, that fit into the a similar time frame and has contributed. All right, Troy, I know you got to run. I'll let you go with that. But there's always so much to talk about with Big Sky. We're going to have to do this again sometime. But for now, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time today. And congratulations on just all the momentum you have at that place. Just unreal to watch. Yeah, Stuart, thank you so much for the opportunity. Great seeing you uh, on the tram event and more to come. Thank you for your time. That's Troy Nedved, General Manager of Big Sky, Montana. How was that for starting out 2024? Troy, I appreciate you showing up huge for a second podcast appearance in less than a month. I really, really enjoyed that, and I hope you all did too. I very much appreciate you listening. 2024 is going to be absolutely huge in the storm. I have conversations scheduled with the leaders of Mount St. Louis Moonstone, Ontario, Buck Hill, Minnesota. Teton Pass, Montana, Sunday River, Maine, Camelback, Pennsylvania, Red Mountain, BC, Panorama, BC, Mount Bachelor, Oregon, Okemo, Vermont, Sugar Bowl, California, Mission Ridge, Washington, Bluewood, Washington. Here's a new one for you. Tenny in New Hampshire. A bunch of you have asked me for that. That is on the books. And in May, we are going to run it back with a good friend of the storm. Alan Hentroth, COO of Arapaho Basin, Colorado. There will be plenty more, of course, and I am working on booking new episodes all the time. You can always view the upcoming schedule on stormskiing.com. And you can also visit stormskiing.com to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter and ensure you get new podcasts the moment they're live. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers always receive podcasts seven days before everyone else. You can follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.